Well, good morning. Uh, several years ago now, um, I was out in Vancouver and I took a course with Chris Wright at Regent College. It was just a wonderful time of teaching and a wonderful course that he offered. Um, during that course, he introduced us to something that at the time I hadn't heard of called the Cape Town Commitment. The Cape Town Commitment was penned uh, about t 10 years ago now, and it was written by several evangelical leaders, leading evangelical leaders, uh, and it was produced by the Lausanne Movement. As we prepare for the sermon a little bit later, which is on the subject of the unity of the Bible, I thought it would be fitting today to read part one, section 6b of the Cape Town Commitment. The title of the section is The Story the Bible Tells, and it reads as follows. The Bible tells the universal story of creation, fall, redemption in history, and new creation. This overarching narrative provides our coherent biblical worldview and shapes our theology. At the center of this story are the climactic saving events of the cross and resurrection of Christ, which constitute the heart of the gospel. It is this story in the Old and New Testaments that tells us who we are, what we are here for, and where we are going. This story of God's mission defines our identity, drives our mission, and assures us the ending is in God's hands. This story must shape the memory and hope of God's people and govern the content of their evangelistic witness as it is passed on from generation to generation. We must make the Bible known by all means possible, for its message is for all people on earth. We recommit ourselves, therefore, to the ongoing task of translating, disseminating, and teaching the scriptures in every culture and language, including those that are predominantly oral or non-literary. Well, I don't know about you, but I find that to be a very uh, worshipful statement on the scope of the Bible and the ongoing, very urgent need uh, to get to the get the Bible into the hands of people everywhere. Bless your time in worship, and we'll see you again in a little while. Good morning, everybody. God is present with us. And may you continue to enjoy his presence now as we continue uh, in a time of worship through preaching. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ, our Lord, your son, to be our savior. We thank you, Father and Son, for sending your Holy Spirit to do many things for us and gift us with many things, among which is his enlightening, his illumination of our hearts and minds as we read the scriptures that you have inspired. And I pray now, Lord, that the Spirit would draw near, help us in this hour as we, again, uh, consider the things concerning your word. I pray, Lord, that you would put a smile on our face and in our hearts as we behold, with your Spirit's help, the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. 
Well, when I was in uh, elementary school, I would often visit our school library to sign out Encyclopedia Brown books. Now, if you're not familiar with Encyclopedia Brown, he was a fictional child detective who would use his investigative skills to solve uh, mysteries in his neighborhood. Each of the books had a series of short stories or a series of cases. In, In each book, there were several of them. And you'd read through each case, taking stock of the basic facts, as you read, trying to pick up, pick up on the clues uh, that were given along the way so that you could solve the case with Encyclopedia Brown. Sometimes, though, it was very difficult to solve the case just simply by observing the facts. And so your recourse was If you couldn't solve the story, your recourse was to go then to the back of the book where the solution to the case was given. And there at the back of the book, the clues that Encyclopedia Brown had noticed that allowed him to solve the case, the clues that you had missed when you read through the story the first time, they were laid out very clearly in the solution. And once you read the solution, You could then go back over the original story, read it again, and you could see those clues that you had missed on your first reading. Well, friends, God has designed the Bible to be read in essentially the same way as an Encyclopedia Brown story. There are clues along the way through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Joshua, Psalms, Isaiah, clues along the way that are understood fully only when you read the end of the book, the New Testament. How do you gain a full understanding, for example, a full understanding of what's going on in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham is prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac? You understand it fully, fully, only by reading the end of the book, where we have the record of the Son of God, Jesus, dying a divinely decreed, substitutionary, sacrificial death on the cross. When we read the revelation that God gives us at the end of the book, in the New Testament, then we go back and we read the Old Testament, and the clues that had been given along the way then make sense. Or, if you like, the Bible is like a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. When you have an individual piece from a jigsaw puzzle, you can look at that individual piece and you can say, well, this piece of the puzzle has its own unique pattern that is printed on it, colors that are printed on it, and the piece itself, if I look at the shape of it, it has a unique shape. 
unique contours, unique edges about it. But the single piece fits in to the larger whole. The single piece is part of the larger whole. Well, in the same way, the book of Haggai is a single piece with its own shape, with its own contours, its own shades. But Haggai is a piece that fits into the larger whole, which is the greater Bible. Numbers is another single piece. And the Gospel of Luke is another single piece. And Philippians and Esther and 1 John, etc., As Kevin Van Hooser says, the individual pieces or individual books of the Bible, quote, were designed to fit together into something whole. And the image of the whole provides the context and makes sense of the smaller individual images, close quote. The Bible is like an Encyclopedia Brown novel in a way. The Bible is like a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle in a way. Or another picture would be of a rainbow. The Bible is like a rainbow. A rainbow is a single thing, right? It's a single thing. It is one whole thing. But it's made up of separate colors, Diverse colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. We could say Deuteronomy is the red, Malachi is the orange, Romans is the green, and so forth. And altogether, the diverse 66 books make up this shining beautiful, unified, 66-colored whole. Or we might also use the analogy that Chris Wright offers. The Bible is like a tree. The trunk of the tree, along with the inner rings of the tree, are the Old Testament revelation while the spreading branches and the delicious fruits that hang on the upper part of the tree, they are the New Testament. The tree is a singular thing. It is one whole organic piece, but there are diverse parts to it. Now, If we are thinking of the Bible in the sorts of ways that we have suggested, where there is an organic unity to the Bible, even with its diversity of parts, its diversity of pieces, if we're thinking of the Bible this way, it has to affect, listen, it has to affect our reading of the Bible and our approach to the Bible. For one thing, Instead of the popular idea that we come to a given verse or a given passage always asking the question, what does this verse say to me? 
We come instead to the Bible asking the more proper and the more crucial question, what does this verse mean in its context, which is the whole Bible? We say, now that I understand that God has designed the whole Bible as a unity, what does that mean for my reading of this individual verse or this individual passage? What does it mean for the way in which I read this passage? Is it wise for me to be reading this verse or this passage in a sort of vacuum, all by itself? Or should I be reading it in light of the whole in which this particular passage or verse is situated? I want you to listen to Richard Lintz here, who has something important to say about reading the Bible in the way that our forebears, the reformers, read the Bible. Lintz says this, listen to this, quote, The reformers held that the proper context for the interpretation of the text is not the subjective interaction between a particular passage and a particular person, so in other words, the approach where we say, what does this verse mean to me? He says, rather, the proper context for the interpretation of the text is the interaction of a given passage with the whole of Scripture itself, the essential unity of which is established by divine origin. Close quote. Now you may have noticed over my four years serving as pastor at Snowden that explicitly and implicitly I have been striving over these four years to get us to read Scripture in the way of the reformers, where we learn to always ask the question, how does this verse or passage interpret based on it being situated in the whole canon of Scripture? What is the meaning of this passage taking into account its context in the unified 66-book canon of Scripture. Friends, I am more convinced than I ever have been that the church of, D of Jesus Christ desperately needs, desperately needs to curtail subjective readings of the Bible, which are based so often only on private whims and private biases, and we need to learn to read the Bible instead on its own terms, on its own terms. Reading in this whole canonical way, always letting Scripture interpret Scripture. We must learn to approach our Bible with a strong conviction, listen, a strong conviction that God has authored the whole of it 
and the whole of it is unified and therefore it must be read as a whole. I dare say that the promise box style of reading the Bible where you extract a promise out of the Bible and sever it from its context within the whole of Scripture and read it rather subjectively in a vacuum, this must be resisted. This tendency must be abandoned, I would go so far as to say. We're talking this morning about the unity of the Bible. But now, in the direction of the Bible's diversity, here's something absolutely staggering. I want you to listen carefully. On the human side of the ledger, on the human side of the ledger, the 66 books of Scripture were written over a span of approximately 1,500 years by at least 40 different authors, people from diverse backgrounds, diverse upbringings, diverse situations. In the majority of cases, the biblical authors did not know one another. And they wrote their books to different audiences in different circumstances. Some authors were especially concerned to address issues of social justice. Others, the problem of evil. Others, concerns related to the temple. Others focused on covenant. Others focused on the area of national failure. Others centered on the coming day of the Lord, etc., etc. And these diverse authors writing on diverse subjects to diverse audiences, wrote their books using a diversity of languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And they wrote from a variety of locations, didn't they? Locations like the confines of a cave, beside a canal, on the island of Patmos, in a prison cell, in a palace, in the wilderness. And where genre is concerned, they used a significantly wide variety of genre, from narrative to law, to poetry, to prophecy, to lament to apocalypse, to standard letter. It's very fair to say that in the Bible there is a great diversity, a, div a diversity of styles, themes, times, audiences, languages, circumstances, genres, and purposes. But the staggering fact about the Bible is that the end product is an extraordinary unity, a unity of theology and a unity of history. How can this possibly be so? Why is this so? 
Because with the Bible, we are not simply dealing with a diverse variety of human authors. In this series of sermons, we've argued for the dual authorship of the Bible. The fact is, friends, that above the diverse human authors, working through the diverse human authors, is the other author, God himself. As Matthew Barrett says, God's authorship of the Bible guarantees that from beginning to end, the Bible is an unbroken unity. Close quote. Or as Richard Lintz has it, quote, the scriptures hold together because they have been delivered by a single divine author. Close quote. God loves all the diversity of the human authors. God enlists that diversity and God encourages that diversity. He preserves in the scriptures the varied personalities and interests and idiosyncrasies of the human authors. But at the same time, at the same time, Since God is authoring scripture, the human beings who were employed in the writing may not have known all they were saying when they wrote. I'll say that again. The human beings who were employed in the writing of scripture may not have known all they were saying when they wrote. They may have written more than they recognized they were writing at the time because at the end of the day, God was exhaling scripture as those human authors were carried along by his spirit. God ensured that all 66 books would end up in this remarkable, organically interconnected unity of theology and history. He guaranteed that the 66 books would become a single whole of salvation history. I want you to think for a moment of a shelf full of books. There's a picture there, a shelf full of books. So say you're looking at a bunch of books on the shelf. 12 or 13 books there on the shelf. So here, over here, there's a book on Italian cooking by one author. Next to that book is a a smaller book on small engine repair by another author. Next to that book is a fictional romance novel by still another author. And next to that is a book on prehistoric sea creatures that has been written by a paleontologist. The books on that shelf that you're looking at are disconnected, aren't they? They are separate pieces. They are separate texts with no discernible relationship to one another. It's hard to link Italian cooking with prehistoric sea creatures. 
Well, the Bible is not like the books on that bookshelf. It's not like that. Rather, the Bible is more like the shelf next to that first one, where now you look and you see 19 or 20 separate books, but each of these books is a single volume within a larger multi-volume work that has been written by a single author. So volume 5 has a relationship to volume 14. Volume 1 has a relationship to volume 20. Volume 8 must be read in light of what you have read in volume 3, and so on and so forth. They are each separate books, but they cohere together. There is a unity inherent across the span of the 20 volumes on that shelf. There is an intertextual relationship across the volumes. It is a unity within a diversity. It is a diversity within a unity. The Bible, comprised of 66 books, is like that. And again, we need to stress once more the implications of this, the implications for our approach to the Bible, for our interpretation of the Bible. They are massive, the implications are. Listen to T. Desmond Alexander, who points us toward the best path for interpretation. Alexander says, There is not a book within the whole Bible that can be interpreted satisfactorily in isolation from the rest. Each book contributes something special to the meta-story, the big story, and in turn, the meta-story offers a framework within within which each book may be best interpreted. In this regard, says Alexander, the long-standing Reformation principle of interpreting Scripture by Scripture makes considerable practical sense. Close quote. We must always bear in mind, to borrow the words of Stephen Dempster, we must always bear in mind that when we approach Scripture, we are approaching a diverse, though unified, 66-book text, singular, text. We are not approaching 66 books worth of unrelated or barely related texts, plural. Again, when we approach Scripture, we are approaching a diverse, though unified, 66-book text, singular, not 66 books worth of unrelated or barely related texts, plural. And this fact, friends, should certainly always, as we've pointed out, always have an impact, a great impact, on our reading and on our interpretation of the Bible. So let me give you one example. As we look at the Bible, here, let's go to the Bible. One example would be this. How do we get the most 
out of our reading of the last three chapters of the Bible, the last three chapters in the book of Revelation. How do we get the most of our reading those chapters? In Revelation 21 and 22, we read of the creation of a new heaven and new earth. In Revelation 21, we read of the lamb with his bride in a new city sanctuary. So we have creation of a new heaven and a new earth. We have the lamb with his bride in a new city sanctuary. And then in Revelation 20, we read of Satan's final destruction. How do we get the most out of our reading of those three chapters? Well, we read those chapters and we notice as we read that those chapters at the tail end of the Bible bear a striking resemblance to the first three chapters at the start of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 3, where we have what? We have the creation of the first heavens and earth, paralleling the creation of the new heavens and earth at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. We have that. And in those early chapters of Genesis, we have the first couple, Adam with his bride, Eve, dwelling with God in the original sanctuary, paralleling the marriage between the last Adam, Jesus, and his bride in Revelation 21, dwelling in the presence of God. And in those first chapters of the Bible, we have Genesis 3, verse 15, which promises what? It promises the destruction of Satan, which comes finally at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 20. In this case, the final three chapters of the Bible help us see the meaning of the first three chapters of the Bible and vice versa. The first three chapters of the Bible help us understand what's going on in the last three chapters of the Bible. God has done this. He has designed the Bible in this way. The Bible has a structure that spans the entire 66 books. The basic point again here is that we need to learn to read our Bible as an organic whole. An organic whole. Or take another example here. When we gather from our reading of the Bible that the basic pegs of the entire story of the Bible are creation, fall into sin, redemption, and restoration. When we gather that those are the four major pegs of Scripture, then we start to see how those four pegs repeat themselves all over the place, throughout the Bible. The most basic place where we see those four pegs is in the story of Adam, of course. Adam is created. Adam falls into sin and we fall with him. But we are redeemed by the Savior, Jesus Christ, and restored 
into right relationship with God by the sacrifice of Jesus. But those same four pegs repeat also, don't they, in the life of David. David's kingship is essentially created by God himself out of nowhere. David then falls into sin with Bathsheba. God redeems David through Nathan's prophetic word, and David is restored to the kingship. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We learn to look, as we read our Bibles, we learn to look for patterns like that that occur across the entire Bible in story after story. Another example of the four pegs, God creates the nation of Israel out of Abraham's loins. He does that all by himself, creates Israel. Israel later falls into great sin, not only with the golden calf, but they fall into sin in the land, and they are exiled out of the land. And then God does what? He redeems Israel out of Babylon He restores them to their land. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Or, as we read our Bibles, knowing that this Bible is an organic whole, it's a unity, we look for the repetition of the Exodus motif across the span of the whole Bible. In the original Exodus story, Israel found themselves under the tyrannical hand of Pharaoh, right? They were enslaved to Pharaoh. Then God did what? He redeemed Israel. He brought them into his very presence at Sinai. Then they wandered in the wilderness on pilgrimage toward a special location with the aim of settling in that location so that they could then serve and worship God forever. Well, how or where else does this Exodus motif repeat itself? Listen, as believers in Jesus Christ, we were enslaved under the tyrannical hand of Satan and sin. God redeemed us in Christ and brought us into his very presence. We are now on a pilgrimage through the wilderness. Even right now on this Sunday in 2020, we're on a pilgrimage through the wilderness toward a special place called the new earth where we will serve and worship God forever. We learn to read scripture this way, to read it as a unified whole with repeating motifs, repeating patterns across 66 diverse books. As informed readers of scripture, we are readers who understand the unity of the two testaments, the unity of Old Testament with New Testament. And we strive 
to read the two testaments in what we can call a bi-directional manner, a two-way manner, back and forth. The informed reader of the Bible understands that the concepts, the theology, and the history that are found in the New Testament cannot be properly and fully understood without an understanding of the same things in the Old Testament, and vice versa. The message and purpose of the Old Testament will not be properly grasped unless one understands it in the light of the New Testament. We read in a bi-directional manner between Old and New Testaments, knowing that the Bible is an organic whole. You will not fully understand Jesus if, you, if all you have is the New Testament. You must read Jesus in light of the Old Testament in order to proper, properly behold his glory. And conversely, you will not fully grasp the meaning of the Old Testament unless you read the Old Testament in light of Christ. You will not understand the major biblical motif of kingdom unless you apprehend that motif across both testaments, from back to front and from front to back. You will not see the significance of all the fulfillment that happens in the New Testament unless you have first perceived the promises in the Old Testament. In a passage like Jeremiah chapter 31, you will not fully appreciate the radical discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and yet at the same time the great continuity between Old and New Covenant. You will not understand the discontinuity and the continuity unless you've understand, understood both covenant in its Old Testament setting and the advent of the person of Jesus Christ. We need to learn as best we can to read our Bibles in this way. It is a whole, organically connected, unified book. This matter of the unity within the diversity of the two testaments, I think, is summed up very well by Miles Van, Miles Van Pelt, who says this, quote, The New Testament provides the final authoritative context from which God's people can rightly understand the message and design of the Old Testament. But this relationship is not unidirectional. It doesn't just go one way. The Old Testament provides the background and conceptual categories for understanding the message of the New Testament. The two Testaments, says Van Pelt, in all their diversity are forever united as the Word of God and what God has joined together, let not man 
separate. Close quote. Or, in the words of Adolf Saffer, who was a Jew who converted to Jesus Christ in his adolescence, Saffer said, The Bible is like that child of whom Solomon said, Divide it. And the mother cried out, By no means slay the child. For to divide Old Testament and New Testament is to take away the life of both. For they are not merely connected, nor are they merely harmonious, but they interpenetrate one another. I've always loved that. Old and New Testaments interpenetrate one another. Now, one of the things that has exercised theologians over the years is the question, is it possible for us to find a unifying center in the Bible, a central theme or a central motif in Scripture that we can say is the all-encapsulating all unifying theme. Many proposals have been put forth here. Some have argued very intensively, for example, some have argued that covenant is the central theme of the Bible. Others have argued that kingdom is the central theme. Others have argued that justice is or salvation, or temple. Or in Walter Kaiser's case, he says that the central theme of Scripture is the promise plan of God. The promise plan of God. My own contention is that if a unifying theme is to be found in the Bible, it's not actually a theme, but rather a person, the person of Jesus Christ, including his life, teaching, death, resurrection, and second coming. Jesus, I would argue, Jesus is the center and the interpretive key and the star around which everything orbits throughout the entirety of the 66-book unity that we call the Bible. And here I ask your indulgence as we work toward a close, I ask your indulgence as I worshipfully make my case that Jesus is the center of the entire Bible. And I invite you to worship with me as we consider Christ as the unifying center of Scripture. I think perhaps one of the strongest points to make here is that our Lord himself, Jesus himself, expressed the fact on several occasions that he was the subject of the Old Testament scriptures and the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. In John 5.39, Jesus says that the Old Testament scriptures testify 
of him. And seven verses later in John 5.46, Jesus affirms that Moses, Moses who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, that Moses, says Jesus, was writing of me, of Jesus. Jesus says in John 5 that the Old Testament scriptures are about him. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus said that he was the one who would do what? Fulfill the Old Testament law and prophets. Matthew 5.17. In Matthew 21, when Jesus gives the parable of the householder, He applies Psalm 118 from the Old Testament. He applies that to himself. He is the stone that the builders rejected and the head of the corner. He is the one written about in Psalm 118. In Matthew 26, verse 56, Jesus says there that even his arrest in the garden is in fulfillment of what had been written in the Old Testament prophets. Jesus tells us that the Old Testament is about Jesus. In Mark 14, 27, Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, 7. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus applies that verse to himself. He is the fulfillment of that Old Testament verse also. In Luke 22, verse 37, Jesus says there very plainly, he says, that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, must be fulfilled in him. In Luke 24, Jesus interpreted to his confused disciples the things concerning himself in all the Old Testament scriptures. He said to them, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Our point here is that Jesus himself declared that he was the subject and the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus had an awareness that upon his arrival to earth in the flesh, the end point of all that the Old Testament spoke of had come. It had come in him. He was the goal that the Old Testament scriptures had been pointing to. And so the very first thing out of his mouth in the Gospel of Mark is the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the very first thing he says in what is probably the oldest of the four Gospels. The Apostle Paul joins the course and says of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, all the promises of God All those many Old Testament promises and the covenants, those many Old Testament promises through the prophets, through the types 
through the shadows in the Old Testament, all God's promises, says Paul, find their yes in Jesus. The concern of the gospel writer Matthew is to show, constantly to show, that the words and actions of this person, Jesus, fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. Just two examples here. Matthew is careful to point out in Matthew 4.14 that the actions of Jesus are fulfilling Isaiah in the Old Testament. And in Matthew 8.17, Matthew wants us to know that when Jesus heals the demon-possessed and the sick, he is likewise fulfilling Isaiah. Jesus is the fulfillment, friends, of the Old Testament scriptures. The Apostle Peter says of Jesus in Acts 10.43 that all the prophets, all the Old Testament prophets, bear witness to Jesus. Jesus is the center of the entire Bible. The concern of Apollos as he spoke with some Jewish people in Acts 18.28, his concern was to show them by their scriptures, by their Old Testament scriptures, that the Christ was Jesus. Likewise, in Acts 28.23, the concern of Paul there was to convince his hearers about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Jesus, again, is the center of the Bible. He is the star around which everything orbits. He is the unifying center of all the scriptures. What is the message the design, the function of the 39 books of the Old Testament. The message is Jesus, the design is Jesus, and the function is to point to Jesus. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that Old Testament festivals, Old Testament Sabbaths were the shadow of but the substance belongs to Christ. Jesus is the substance of the Old Testament shadows. In Romans 1, verses 1 through 3, Paul affirms there that the gospel which arrived in Jesus, the gospel that arrived in Jesus had been promised beforehand, promised beforehand through the scriptures written by God's Old Testament Prophets, friends, Jesus is the glorious center of the whole Bible. Jesus is the last Adam who obeys where Adam failed. Jesus is the better ark of Noah. He leads not just eight people to safety, but he leads all his myriads of people safely through the judgment of God. Jesus is the seed of the woman, and he is the offspring of Abraham, and he is the realization of the promises to Abraham. The sacrifice of Jesus is better than that of Abel, better than that of Abraham offering Isaac, because the sacrifice of Jesus is 
full and perfect to overcome the sin of the world. Jesus is the faithful Israel who overcomes temptation in the wilderness and obeys God perfectly. Jesus is the Passover lamb of God, given sacrificially for a new exodus. Jesus is the new and better Moses. He mediates a better covenant than Moses did, and he leads his people out of a greater slavery. Jesus is the perfect high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the new and better Joshua who leads his people victoriously in their final battle. Jesus is the new and better David from the tribe of Judah who reigns forever on the throne and gives his people rest. Don't you need rest? He gives his people rest from all their enemies. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is greater than Solomon. Jesus is the new and better temple where the real presence of God resides. Jesus is the new and better, greater prophet who himself bears the punishment of the prophetic lawsuit that stood against God's people. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is how God speaks to us in these last days. At the beginning today, we talked about Encyclopedia Brown books and how the solution to the story was found at the back of the book. The back of the Bible is the New Testament, centered on Jesus Christ. He is the solution, friends, to the entire story, all 66 books of the Bible. We go back in the Old Testament, and we see, having read the New Testament, we see the thousands of clues that are shadows of the substance who is Jesus Christ. The portrait that is on the completed jigsaw puzzle is a portrait of Jesus. All the diverse individual pieces fit together and we are left looking at Jesus Christ. And so the church proclaims and preaches Jesus. We have to do in the church, as Paul says in Colossians 1.28, Him, Jesus, we proclaim. Him. We declare and we preach not ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ. The burden of the apostles, the burden of the prophets was to teach and preach and declare and show from the scriptures the person of Jesus Christ to bring glory to him, to magnify him, and that must be our burden also. Jesus knew that he was the center of God's revelation. The apostles knew it also. The Holy Spirit's concern is to testify Christ and our concern must be the same. And so, my friend, this week, in your corner of the world, wherever you are, I challenge you to be a faithful ambassador 
of Jesus Christ in the power that the Spirit supplies dare to tell somebody about Jesus. Share Jesus with somebody this week. Encourage somebody to look to him. And God bless you as you do. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are amazed at this word that you have breathed into this world, this Bible that gives us revelation of Jesus Christ as the center of Scripture, but also tells us more than we could ever know about ourselves and our condition before you and the way of salvation. We thank you, Lord, for what you have revealed to us. And may we be faithful ambassadors uh, this week in sharing the good news with others. We pray these things and ask for the power of your, and the enablement of your spirit this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.